welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Thursday Deep Dive episode. We got Ian Gray on as usual. We're going to be talking Corsair Gaming. This is Ryan's pick. Uh, another gaming company, but it's not a video game studio. So it's more of the equipment company. If you've ever heard of Turtle Beach, they're kind of in that category as well. But yeah, we have Ian Gray as on. You're coming in from Hawaii, spending an hour on your vacation uh, to hop on this Zoom call. So uh, how's that going? How's the, how's the sun down there? It's been nice. It's, uh, you know, mid eighties, the beach is nice. The water's warm and, uh, it's, it's been a good trip so far. Nice. All right, Ryan, do you want to introduce Corsair and then first talk about seven investing? Yes. Uh, new Rex are are out. Uh, yeah, we might be on a time delay here, but we're recording this on June 1st and this is the day the new recommendations came out. Yeah. Uh, any favorites? I like Simon's. Yeah, I do too. That's hard not a good one. Very good analysis on that one. Haven't read them all yet, but I'm assuming they all have good analysis, like always. Yeah, just use your code CCM. I think you're only going to have like a month left before the prices go up. So, ten dollars off. That's right. Use code CCM. Uh, But without further ado, let's get to the show. Uh, The company is Corsair Gaming, uh, and I want to give credit to the recommendation we got this one in an email. Max Massetti, thank you for putting this one kind of on our watch list. Uh, and so Corsair Gaming is a leading provider of uh, and, and maker of high performance gear for gamers and streamers. Um, and it's kind of more for competitive gamers, but it's kind of like golf equipment where uh, some of the gamers might not be that good, but they're going to buy the high end stuff anyways, or they want to. So they, you know, kind of like clubs. Um, but yeah, it's like uh, microphones, that kind of thing. And they break it into two categories or they break revenue into two categories. Um, uh, so it's gamer and creator peripherals. So this includes keyboards, mice, headsets, controllers. Uh, there's They have microphones, capture cards, which are like if you're on console, you're going to plug in. Uh, you plug in the HDMI, you plug this into the HDMI port so that you can capture the video and have it be high quality footage so you're not like recording the screen, if that makes sense. Um, so it's a way to kind of uh, upload it onto your computer and you have a digital version of it. Um, and then there's also studio accessories, that kind of thing. And so they have 18.3% market share uh, within that category. And then gaming components and systems is their second category. Uh, so this is more the high performance stuff and they call it power supply units or PSUs. It's like high-end gaming PCs, custom built PCs. The prices can range anywhere from $1,000 for these to $5,000. Some are, I think, even more than that. And if you're thinking how big is like the PC gaming market piece, I think there's more than 520 million PC gamers globally. 94 million of them spend more than $1,000 on their setup. So Yeah, those are the hardcore ones. They're really going after the pure, like the esports type players. Yeah, and if, into it. if you're making the shift from console to PC, that means you're, you're probably doing it because you want that much quicker speed, less lag time. It's something where you're maybe playing like combat games where you kind of like need the the best connection possible. 
Um, and anyway, anyway, they also sell the separate parts uh, with that. So like parts of the PC uh, and that includes like cooling liquid fans, additional memory, and they have 42% market share in that category. So they really are the premier player in PC gaming. Uh, and then they primarily sell through online retailers or brick and mortar stores. Although they've said that their goal is to reach 15% of sales through direct consumer channels. Uh, and they are, they have premium pricing. So it's not like turtle beach really is sort of the low end type of stuff. This is more, they can charge what they want. They have a bit of pricing power. Obviously they can't extend that too much, but then they have a bunch of different subsidiaries under the Corsair gaming brand. So they have visuals by impulse, which is, uh, when you look at a stream, there's usually like fancy designs and stuff like that. And you've got like the video with whoever the streamer is in the corner. That's sort of an overlay. Visuals by Impulse sells those overlays. Uh, so that's more of a digital uh, subsidiary. And then there's Elgato. This is what's included in the peripherals, kind of a name brand or uh, a name, a pr prominent brand in the peripherals market. Uh, SCUF, maybe it's SCUF. This is controllers. So for like the console market and then Origin is the super high-end gaming PCs and then Gamer Sensei, which we'll talk about in the second half. But I'll get into the history. Custom PCs started getting built in the 90s. Uh, and Andy Paul and three other people, uh, three other engineers were in Fremont, California at the time. They started Corsair Microsystems in 1994. Uh, and obviously that market has evolved and they've had to sort of pivot uh, what they're primarily selling multiple times, but over the last decade, it's kind of been more of the same stuff, more of a, a permanent business. Um, and, and I'll also say Andy Paul is kind of a pioneer in this industry. Um, Eagle Tree, which is the private equity firm, bought a majority stake in 2017. Since that time, Corsair has done a lot of acquisitions as well. They've really taken off. I mean, esports as a category has really taken off over the last decade. So they've kind of been a beneficiary of that. They went public in September of 2020. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of history there, but Andy Paul was kind of, he was always in this industry. He has a degree from physics from like University of London, uh, kind of a bright guy. And he's been kind of committed to this for 25 plus years. Yeah, that was a good overview. And yeah, they do make a lot of small acquisitions. I'll hit the industry and composition quick. I mean, they have multiple product segments, so it's kind of tough to judge. And they do identify like a $40 billion TAM. But when looking at their market share that they lay out, I don't think those two numbers match up. So I'm going for uh, the $6 billion market opportunity that some third-party source says, and that is for the gaming accessories market. So uh, they're expecting that to grow to about $6 million by 2024. And that is for really the peripheral stuff. Um, you know, the gaming components is slightly smaller. As you can see, they already have almost 50% market share. And Ryan will get into the earnings later. It's not that large of a market, but, you know, it's a pretty sizable one. Um, competitors include Logitech, Turtle Beach, Razer, HyperX, and then a lot of other smaller brands, some of which Corsair has bought up. And then Dell and HP are competitors within the gaming PC division. Uh, but really, like, the main, and I guess we'll get into this, the main bull case is the peripherals and, and the non-like uh, chips and stuff like that. And then another ind indicator, I think, would be to track the rise in esports as well. That's a market that's growing at a double-digit rate, or at least has been historically. A lot of predictions are that it's going to grow, at, you know, a size, a 10% rate or something like that over the next decade. Uh, so really big tailwind for this company. Um, Ian, do you want to hit management and ownership or Ryan? Yeah, I'd say the primary competitor, 
I mean, there are definitely overlaps with all these smaller brands, but the primary competitor is probably Logitech because Logitech also has uh, Streamlabs, which is like the primary OBS uh, software. So it like combines a lot of the streaming different. It's, it's the primary streaming software, even though uh, Coursera has their own, which is like IQ, uh, I-C-U-E. So they kind of compete on that. Logitech is also kind of the cameras. They they really focused on the streaming. Yeah, market. Logitech is big in keyboards, and then Turtle Beach is bigger in some of the other stuff like um, headphones, microphones, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So yeah, you need one hit management and ownership. Yep. Uh, Andy, uh, Andrew Paul, as Ryan mentioned, also known as Andy, uh, co-founded Corsair in 1994, and he's still the CEO today. He owns about 4% of the shares outstanding. His compensation in 2020 was almost $3 million, which is a bit high for a company's particularly uh, of this size, but nothing absurd, at least in my mind. Um, traditionally, it was closer to kind of $1.5 million. Uh, the CFO, Michael Potter, um, he was just brought on in... 2019, I believe. And he's worked in a variety of CFO roles over the years, most recently at a large pension fund and then uh, Canadian Solar. So he's a professional CEO or CFO was brought in to, to, I'm sure, just kind of add some credibility as they went public. Um, <clears throat> I do like in the in the earnings call, he gave very detailed and thorough forecasts, which maybe gives me a false sense of security, but I also enjoy when management gives a lot of guidance across a variety of factors because it makes me feel like they really know the business and have a plan. Whether that's true or not, who knows, but um, it, it kind of, it definitely gives me gives me that feeling that they know what they're talking about. Um, and so they gave a lot of guidance on capital expenditures and revenue growth and all sorts of stuff. Um, Another member of the management team that's worth pointing out is T. Law, who was recently named president back in January. Um, She's served as COO since August of 2013 and owns nearly 1% of the shares outstanding. I point her out because Andy Paul, I think, is 64 years old and might be nearing retirement. Um, I'm not sure about that exactly, but she seems like she's kind of getting positioned and and groomed to become the successor, potentially. So that's someone, if you're going to invest in this company, that you should get to know a little bit. Um, and then finally, maybe the most important part of this is, um, as Ryan mentioned, the private equity group Eagle Tree um, bought, the, bought Corsair back in uh, 2017, I believe, right, Ryan? Is that what, the year? 20, yeah, I think it's 2017. And um, yeah. they currently own about 67% of the company. So they are the, the very major shareholders here. They're the controlling shareholders. Um, you it's a little unclear. Presumably they're going to get out of their position over the next couple of years, but it's unclear exactly how they will um, get out and how fast they'll get out. It's made a variety of investments over the past 20 years. Um, I didn't really recognize any of the companies it was investing in, mostly their uh, mid-market companies. Um, And one I did recognize though is Odwalla, the juice brand. They owned that from 2000 to 2001. So kind of just a random little tidbit there, but they focus on three segments, consumer, media and business services and water and specialty industrial. Um, So they really, like I said, they really focus on those mid-market acquisitions where they can launch new products, make add-on acquisitions and enact operational improvements. And we've definitely seen with Corsair, a lot of focus on new products and these acquisitions. There's been a lot of acquisitions um, over the last couple of years since they made, um, since uh, Eagle Tree uh, invested. So um, definitely want to get comfortable knowing that how much they own and um, whether you're comfortable with that uh, moving forward. Yeah, if they end up, there could be, you know, just after the IPO, the lockup period, there could be stuff like that. 
they might be ended up selling a, lot, a big part of their stake. Uh, but who knows? Who knows what their plans are? Um, I'll hit valuation. Market cap right now is about $2.88 billion. Ticker is CRSR. Enterprise value is slightly higher at about $3.08 billion. Um, and with this company, I think it's a better measure because they really just have some standard debt on the balance sheet and they're going to have to pay that down. I believe it is in 2025 that that is due. Uh, but I guess, you know, you will probably get to that later. EV to sales, 1.6. EV to gross profit of 5.6. And then EV to operating income of 14.3. Not much else to say there. I guess they have pretty good conversion from operating income to cash flow. Uh, yeah, very simple, you know, reasonable valuation. And we'll probably try to identify why that is the case later in the episode, Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah, they have, they have 1.9 billion in trailing 12 month revenue. That's up 65% year over year. Peripherals is sort of their higher margin revenue category. Uh, it's not that much higher margin. Obviously they're still manufacturing these goods and selling them, but it's, uh, I think got 10 more, uh, maybe a thousand more basis points on gross uh, margin. Uh, but that grew by 132%, whereas components and systems grew by 52% in the most recent quarter. Uh, the trailing 12-month gross margin was 28.5%. This has expanded over time. Uh, I think they've done a good job being able to raise prices. Um, and then that also came a bit from uh, the product mix, just being that more of the sales growth came from peripherals. Uh, and then they had trailing 12-month operating income of $216 million. That's up a lot from the year before. It's like a 4X or something like that because they weren't quite as profitable prior to COVID. Uh, and then operating cash flow and free cash flow for the most recent quarter looks a bit depressed because they have a higher accounts receivable. And right now, inventory is a bit constrained due to the chip shortage. Um, but normalized, it looks like free cash flow margins are about 10%. Uh, and their adjusted operating income margin, which I think is actually, usually I'm not a fan of adjustments, but it's, I'm okay with this one because the primary expense that they back out is amortization of intangibles, which is kind of hard to justify yeah. or kind of hard to really analyze. Uh, and that's about 15%. So it, that's kind of what you're looking at. And I wouldn't say that uh, there's no crazy operating leverage in this business and, and uh unless some software component becomes a big part of it. Uh, so 15% is probably what you're looking at. Uh, and then as far as guidance goes, well, there's barely any stock-based compensation. I should add that as well. And then guidance, uh, they raised guidance in the first quarter. They're playing it pretty slowly because there's a lot of uncertainty around reopening. But at the mid-range uh, of their guidance, they're projecting for 18% revenue growth in 2021 and 20% adjusted operating income growth. All in all, they've had a huge boat a huge boost from COVID and they, I think what they're going to do is keep playing it conservatively uh, and then just keep upping their guidance with each incremental quarter uh, as this year plays out, because this guidance is wildly conservative when, if you're looking at 20% overall revenue growth for 2021, when they just had 75% or 72% revenue growth, that means they're expecting a huge reversion. I think they're, and they, Analysts talked about that on the call. They're kind of just playing it safe. Yeah, that does make sense because the commodity issues and yeah. the theme. There's a lot of theories out there that gaming is going to get a you know slowdown from its 2020 boost, but time will tell if that's the case. Um, Ian, you went in balance sheet to close out the first half. Yep, they've got cash on the balance sheet of 125 million dollars. Inventories of $234 million, which is up from 2020, but um, they do have higher inventory turnover, and the the inventory is. Um, 
like down as a percentage of revenue, basically. Um, they've got over $550 million in goodwill and intangibles, which Ryan touched on a little bit that they're amortizing down those intangibles. Um, it's to be expected given the acquisitions. It's a little bit high. You know, it's 30 some percent of total assets. So write downs could be an issue. But like I said, they're, they're uh, amortizing intangibles down over time. So that's um, shouldn't be a big concern. And then debt of around $300 million, as Brett was alluding to, um, they expect to pay down an additional 70 million ish this year. They used uh, the $28 million in operating cash flow from Q1 to pay down debt. And so that's something that um, one of the strategic initiatives they're working on is reducing the debt on their balance sheet and getting it down from, you know, from this year, starting at about 325 million down to about 225 million by the end of the year, which um, makes an, it makes an impact. They said that even just the $25 million, they reduced it and um, uh, Q1 reduced interest expense by about a million dollars for the quarter. So um, it, it's having an impact. They want to get, they feel like some of their, um, they're not being rewarded for the quality of the business because they have too much debt in, in, in some cases. So um, the final note I'll make on that is it's kind of complicated exactly what the interest rate is. There's a bunch of different options they can use for their interest rate. But in 2020, the effective rate was 6.45% on the um, vast majority of their debt. So fairly high interest rate debt in this environment, um, which is probably another reason why they're trying to pay some of it down. Yeah, it looked like it's a variable rate. Um, and so there is a little bit of- There was a ton of variables in there too. It's hard to, it was like LIBOR- I thought it was- Right, it was- LIBOR plus one. No, there's like- Well, it was like LIBOR plus one plus an additional thing, or they could do yeah. this other one and they could choose which option they wanted. So um, it's variable rate. Currently it's about 6.5%. Um, I just read the average and I was like, I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> yeah. I'll just take the average. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that interest yeah. expense has been high, so it'll be good if they can pay that down for sure. I mean, they could probably refinance even and get, and get some better debt right now. Yeah, I think uh, there is a little bit of interest rate risk there having to be variable rate. So paying it down earlier rather than later, it's probably a good thing for them. Um, but also, I'm not opposed to them having debt if it's like lower rates. Yeah, they can get better interest rates. But I mean, this one looks like they got it back when the business wasn't as high of quality. So hopefully they can either refinance or just clear this up and run with the clean balance sheet. All right, that's going to be the first half. Let's get an ad break and we'll have the second half to show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. Next up, we got product experience. Ian, you want to kick things off with this one? Sure. So I was actually just talking to my cousin um, a couple of weeks ago and he recently built his own PC. And so when we decided to do Coursera, I was like, huh, I wonder if he actually used any of these. And he just texted me actually while we were um, doing the show and said that uh, it's a pretty well-established vendor. He ended up getting some case fans from them and then a lot of peripherals. So a keyboard and a mouse and a few other things. And so um, his experience was positive. He was kind of looking for when we were talking about um, him building his PCs, he was looking for high quality stuff, but um, at a reasonable rate as well. And so he didn't want to totally break the bank building his uh, rig out. So it uh, seems like 
seems like um, everything we're reading is was his experience with them that it's high quality but not not super expensive. Yeah, I think with the PC market specifically, you kind of if you're building a custom PC, you're going to go through Corsair probably one way or another. Um, and then I have a friend uh, who does like streaming and he's kind of like an esports player, uh, but he's on console and he even he said like with Elk. A lot of Elgato stuff, which is one of their subsidiaries, is uh, designed for console. And they said he said the HD60S, which is like the capture card, is kind of a must-have if you're trying to stream. Um, and then there's other stuff as well. But he uses Streamlabs as the OBS software or the streaming and you software. You explain what that is again? It's a little complicated. Yeah, you're you're running a whole bunch of different systems, um, and you have to connect a bunch of different things as well. So you have like lighting, microphone, volume display okay. and you want it all kind of from one uniform platform you want a software that can kind of control all that uh corsair has one but i think streamlabs is sort of the industry standard okay okay and they they bought streamlabs or no logitech bought streamlabs, logitech bought streamlabs. but i okay so they're the, they're the number one kind of right now yeah i'm not exactly sure on market share but i know uh, IQ does sort of the same thing. And then Elgato introduced the Stream Deck, which is like a hardware. It's almost like a tablet for it where you can like control your different uh, whatever systems or production parts um, kind of with the tap of a button. Um, so that's grown pretty popular as well. But And he said he's buying that, but it will be, uh, there, it's like supply constraint. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I got nothing, uh, I had nothing really important to add there. So competitive advantages in what are your thoughts on, uh, this for Corsair? Well, I'm stealing yours a little bit here, Brett, but, uh, it's a little different. They have tremendous market share right now across their, uh, the products that they sell. And so getting to that dominant position for companies generally creates pricing power, uh, the ability to sell more tangential, even peripheral products, um, improve logistics and supply chain generally. So having the market share position, they are the the big dog in this market, um, you know, is to, to borrow a term from uh, David Gardner, they're, they're the rule breaker, they're the top dog. So, um, that's, I think that provides a little bit of a competitive advantage for them moving forward. Okay. Yeah. And to be clear, they're the big dog in the components, but it's a little bit more. And, yeah. Correct. I mean, there are some complexities to scaling like a manufacturing business. So I guess you could call that. A no, there's just like software. You heard uh, of this company called Tesla? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. No, sorry. You're right. You're right. Uh, but uh, I guess my competitive advantage, uh, the, the brand makes it easier for them to kind of move into uh, different product categories as well. I think they launched 28 new products or something like that in the first quarter, which was kind of bothering me. They don't need to do a press release for every new product launch. But then also there's it, this one, I guess you could call it kind of a network effect, but lighting is like a big thing for streamers and they have like distinguishable lighting. It's kind of like this weird rainbow type yeah, color purple and yellow right yeah and so you know what a corsair item is when you're watching a stream and so that kind of creates like oh he uses corsair like oh i like that streamer who uses it so it's kind of an advantage i guess in a sense to have that distinguishable feature uh versus maybe some other uh kind of more run-of-the-mill products yeah like turtle beach yeah that leads right into mine as well of getting people to look at other people playing with corsair and that's the brand equity with consumers that's the big one for just a consumer brand like this. 
Um, I think as an investor, you really got to try to look at it in the same light as a Nike or a Lululemon, something like that. But think, all right, this is, could it be the Nike or Lululemon for esports or whatever other analogy you want to use? Um, they're going to probably sign big esports gamers. Hopefully, if they have millions of people watching their streams or, you know, whatever on demand videos, Corsair, you know, they see people using Corsair. It's just like people wearing Nike shoes or Nike cleats. The biggest research task I think I would be doing if I was considering an investment in this company is to identify if they are the Nike or if they're the, I don't know, what's like one of the fourth rate Pumas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because Nike has been one of the best investments of all time. I think Puma, you know, it seems like a fine business, but yeah. Yeah. I don't really know much about Puma, but maybe that's the point. Uh, All right. Future growth opportunities. Ian, what are your thoughts here? For me, the major growth opportunity is gaming content between Twitch, podcasting, YouTube. They're really providing the tools and the software to monetize your gaming through content creation. And I think that's where a lot of the growth in both, whether it's actual the PCs and that they're building and buying, or whether it's um, more of the peripherals and the lighting, as you were mentioning, and, and um, some of the software components. I, I think there's a lot of growth in that industry. And just as more and more people realize, wow, I can game and make money off of it. Um, I think that's going to provide a lot of tailwinds for Corsair. Yeah. And those competitions, the, the big competitions as well, uh, sponsored by all, the, all the, the different games like Call of Duty, League of Legends, stuff like that. Um, Ryan, what are your thoughts here? Uh, the Gamer Sensei acquisition. So they acquired this back in October of 2020. Uh, it was called an immater- immaterial amount on the 10K. Uh, but they're basically... I think they really got it for the like the tech and they're trying to sort of totally redo it. Uh, and so if you don't know what it is, it's an esports coaching platform, which I know might not sound like a huge market, but you'd be surprised. Uh, and so let's say I wanted to get better at like Rocket League. I could go in, I could pick that game. You could pick other ones like League of Legends or Call of Duty or something like that. Uh, and then it gives you a bunch of different coaches and different prices. You could pick one, get a one-on-one session. Uh, but it's kind of like Fiverr in that sense, but uh, they said they have, and they talked about this on the conference call. They said they have big ambitions to kind of change this. Um, so they're going to do like master classes, camps, and then they're going to change the coaching roster because they have like a huge influencer network, whether it's through Elgato, Visuals by Impulse, uh, or even like some of their PC gamers. Yeah. yeah, it's just like big uh, YouTubers, Twitch streamers, all that kind of stuff. They If they can really... If, if people are able to get one-on-one sessions for $150 or whatever with their favorite streamer, I think they'll do it. Um, and so I think there's definitely uh, some value in that Gamer Sensei acquisition. And this is kind of pie in the sky, but let's say the uh, game coaching worked out. There's a lot of other industries that I think coaching could apply to if that platform works. Yeah, I guess that's... Yeah, it's far-fetched. That's, yeah, that, that's a little, yeah, that's a little out there, but it, it's possible. It's possible. Um, I'll have mine. I think it's the rise of, I don't mean that. I no, it is. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a way down That's pie in the sky. Yeah. I'll have mine. It's the, the rise of esports. This is the big one that we talked about, kind of a ancillary growth that'll help grow the, you know, the parts market and the um, equipment market and the gear market. So this could mean sponsoring events, getting big players to sign with Corsair, like I mentioned earlier. And theoretically, that convinces everyone to use their products as well. I was just thinking, you know, why don't we just, the CEO could probably just read Shoe Dog and then just copy what Nike does because no one has done this in this market yet. No, 
maybe they have, and I'm not really sure of it, but it seems like investing heavily into this, what you call, you know, aspirational marketing would really help them dominate their position. I mean, just look at Yeti, Peloton, all those types of companies that can charge what you would think is just a commodity for like three times the competitors. I mean, that's got to be the opportunity here or else it's just going to be a commodity business and never really generate that much profits. So, all right. Highlights on low lights. Ian, what are your, what are your thoughts here? For me, the highlights are their strong market share. And as we've talked about, it'd be great if they could grow that even more, but 42% market share in PC components, 18% of the peripheral market share. So even in the peripherals, a very high market share, they're paying down their debt. Um, and just a lot of industry tailwinds as we've discussed. For me, the low lights um, in their 10K, they mentioned that Amazon accounts for about a quarter of their sales. And so um, that's that's a big portion of their sales. I don't think that is a huge risk, but it's something to be aware of. And then their 10 largest customers account for over 50% of revenue. And so that, that means all the retailers they're selling through. And they've made it a stated goal that they're trying to get to... Um, believe 15% direct to consumer sales in the next couple of years. And so they're, they're trying to kind of, that feels like, what do you say? It feels like it does feel like a small number. I think they, I think I read that they're at 10 or 11, 12% today. And so it's actually not that much um, of an improvement from there. And it seems like that's really one route for them to go to improve margins too, is the more they shift to direct to consumer in theory, uh, they're higher their margins that the higher margins they should be. And then the last low light for me, it's just a considerable amount of debt and, and high interest rate debt. So they seem to be focused on paying that down, which is a highlight, but uh, there still is quite a bit of debt. Yeah, it'll take them a few years to do that unless they, unless they start growing a lot more rapidly. Um, Ryan, what do you have for highlights and highlights? Highlights for me, they I mean, the the premier brand in uh, a big industry, in my opinion, and a growing industry. And then I also think Andy Paul, uh, I watched a few interviews with him. He's very... Uh, he's what you want in a CEO. And he's also very committed to this. I think he's proved that out through being there for 25 plus years. Um, uh, I would also say there are industry, industry tailwinds. Not a, and I know people say that all the time, but Twitch and YouTube do a lot of marketing almost for them because you can watch your favorite streamer and then you go, oh, okay, that's what they use. I'll use that. Um, and, and so that just gives them growth without them having to put capital into it well um, i think they got it I and mean, just to push back a bit i think they have to invest in the athletes to get that to be the differentiated brand they're gonna have to what do you mean invest in that like uh the big time streamers they're gonna have to pay them just like nike does you know pay to, them for to use what? to use their products and it seems like that's the rational end state of this market um uh, yeah, I think people on PCs are using them naturally. Yeah. So I don't know if they have to necessarily pay them to do it. But well, uh, people naturally wear Nike cleats, but they still pay LeBron a billion dollars. Yeah, I guess there's that. Uh, but low lights for me. Um, the timing seems a little like capitalizing on a good year, uh, the timing of the IPO. Yeah. Um, but that's the good time to do it. So it's kind of like, well, they, and they raised that money to a really high price. That was smart too. See if financially it was. They did, they did a secondary. Offer. Yeah. They did a secondary at $35 a share this winter. So that was smart. Interesting. Uh, didn't see that, but then I guess the other one guidance was really conservative. There's some cer- 
uncertainty around reopening, but I would, I'd argue that a lot of that's overblown. I'd be more concerned about supply constraints than someone that just bought $5,000 PC custom built. Uh, I think he's going to stick. He's going to make the incremental investments to get the fan case, the cooling liquid. Uh, I still don't think maybe it isn't as much growth, but I don't think there's going to be a massive reversion. And even if it is, I think it'll be temporary because the industry at large is growing. And, and these, these gamers aren't, um, these aren't the gamers that picked it up in 2020, just bought a Nintendo switch and played one Mario game. You know, these are the, these are the big time gamers that have probably been doing it for five years or something like that. So that, I think that narrative, especially like for gaming as a whole, it makes sense a bit, but for this niche, I think it doesn't make any sense in what are your thoughts. Yeah, I was just going to add, they talk in their investor presentation and on their calls about the third world that they see people spending time at home, at work, and that gaming is really becoming the third place that people spend time um, and in these virtual worlds. And so, like you were saying, those for those high-end gamers who really enjoy gaming, who that's the big thing for them, um, it's part of their life. And just because we're going back to normal doesn't mean they're not going to, at least in my opinion, doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to stop gaming, right? It's, um, there's still going to be plenty of time for the third most important thing in their life. If it's even, it may even be higher than that for them, but. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, all right, I'll hit my highlights. I think there's definitely a path, like mine mentioned, to 15% free cash flow margins, those working capital things. You won't get that double headwind like they had, uh, typically. And if they do, that's just, I think that inventory management and um, accounts payable and accounts receivable management by them. I think they have solid brand equity, but again, that's something I'd want to investigate further. And then big industry tailwind, very simple, but the, I mean, that's a, that's a recipe to, for success for a lot of investments. Low lights for me, um, there's a potential for durability risks that they highlight in the 10K if cloud gaming becomes mainstream. And if it basically has the capabilities of what Netflix has, that means all the equipment sales outside of like a keyboard, mouse, headphone, video camera, stuff like that, all those um, chip components are basically going to be gone. There's going to be no market for them. They, they highlight that as a long-term risk. It's probably going to be a few years at least before cloud gaming becomes mainstream. And maybe it never does. But that's something to think about. Um, there's also the new consoles and big VR investments that could make PC games lose market share again because they've kind of had a resurgence over the last you know, five, 10 years here. Um, and then there's also the commodity price stuff. So they ship everything from Asia. We've seen everything from semiconductors. They are at a risk of commodity prices going up. Um, hopefully that's just a short-term concern though. Yeah, I'm not sure the cloud gaming would have a huge impact on peripherals. No, I also am saying that it's, uh, it's just for the, that's what I'm saying. Like there's still going to be keyboards, mice, headsets, but if all the, and I guess I'm just going to use the word chips are in a data center, then that part of the business is gone for. Yeah. I, I, I think there is some people that kind of overblow the risk of cloud gaming, like wiping out consoles and PCs. I don't believe in cloud gaming, but I, I could see a, I could see a world in which PCs still have similar market share within 10 years. Yeah, definitely. These are just the risks they highlight. So I thought I wanted, you know, if anyone is a big believer in cloud gaming, Corsair might be kind of an, you know, you might not like Corsair. I don't know. Yeah. All right. 
more or less interested in? I'm more interested. This is definitely one that caught my attention and I'm going to be doing some more digging on and looking, looking into, um, for me, the story comes down to if gaming is going to continue to be as big of a part of people's lives or close to it as it has over the past year, um, this is going to be a winning investment. If it, if it's not, then, then I think there's a limited downside here just with the, with the place that the, um, the multiples are at it's it's there's there's some margin of safety here um it, it's it's definitely something i'm more interested in yeah right more interested uh i like the core business i like management i like the industry that they're in uh and then i think they kind of have some call options with the gamer sensei stuff um visuals by impulse was probably won't be hugely material i don't think um and it's a good price uh, yeah, operating value. income multiple of 14 times is well below uh, industry average. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, lots to like. Yeah, I'm more interested. Uh, valuation solid. I would argue that this isn't a business that deserves a premium multiple, but it's way below the market. So, you know, I guess do your own assumptions there. This isn't, I mean, what what's a company? This isn't Visa. <laughs> You know, no. this isn't something like that. It's not a great business. There are risks to commodities. They have to nurture the brand and probably spend a lot on advertising each year. But who knows? Maybe maybe they won't have to. Um, I don't like the components part. I'd honestly just want to invest. It's probably based on this peripheral stuff. That seems like the golden goose here. Uh, but I don't know. That, that, the components just didn't seem like a high margin business at all. I it's, think it's fine, but, you know. I think I that is is influential on the peripheral sales uh, and like sustaining the brand. Yeah, be like because it, it's hard to engineer that stuff, and and they know being known as the premier brand helps. Like I mentioned, enter like oh okay, it's Corsair on fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, uh, safety blanket. Yeah, yeah. There's no room to do it. There, or sorry, there's no harm in doing that if it has positive uh, gross margins. But yeah, yeah, one of the things they point out too is when they see a large uptick in a lot of the component sales, they'll see um, follow-on sales of peripherals over the next 12 months. That And then this past this past year, they've seen a big increase in the number of uh, PCs that people built that are over $2,000. And so they're expecting over this next year, they'll see a, a continued rise in peripheral um, sales, which they saw in Q1. And it's, it, there's a as we've talked about, there's a big question about how how long can they sustain um, pretty high revenue growth. But um, I think there's, as Ryan was saying, I think there's some good kind of um, complementary effects of having both businesses. But um, that's time will tell. Yeah. yeah. And we're good, right? The other thing that's worth noting is the components and systems manufacturing is done in Fremont. The peripherals is done in Taiwan. So okay. it's... Uh, most of the chip stuff is uh, domestic. Yeah, well, it's just it's further down the supply chain. Right. All right. Yeah, the, and I guess I just, one last thing I highlight is that, you know, if you believe like that the company is going to grow revenue, like, all right, what did they grow some of this peripheral stuff at like 70, 80, 100% or whatever? Yeah, last year, I, I think mean, in Q1 it was 130%. Yeah, if you think over the long term they can compound it at like, I don't know, 10, 15%, if that's what you want to underwrite. The multiple, it, it's hard to argue you get multiple compression. It's always possible, but with this business, you know, it's hard to argue with that. So yeah. that's just one more note. As we leave off, Ian, we got stock for next week, and it's your turn. So what's your pick? 
I'm picking Sharp Spring. It is a uh, small cap that competes, as far as I can tell, I don't know a whole lot about the business, but it competes with HubSpot, I think. Um, we'll, take a, we'll take a deeper look into it, but it's a, under a $200 million market cap. It has declined about 50% off its February highs. So um, thought it would be interesting to take a look at. Yeah. Okay, so it competes with like Salesforce or it's kind of in that arena a bit? Kind of. I think it's less complex than Salesforce. It's more focused on um, email marketing, I believe, but I don't really know too much about it. So we'll have to we'll have to dive deep on it next week. All right. Should be fun. Um, that's going to do it for this episode, guys. Thank you all for listening. Remember to use our code CCM to get $10 off your first month at 7investing. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.